All right, if you will, turn with me to 1 Samuel, or as some scholars call it, 1 Samuel. Uh, and I, I'd like for you just to simply know, we're going to 1 Samuel um, 8, but when you have a book such as First and Second Samuel, or First and Second Chronicles, uh, many times that's not how it was written. It was seen as one book, but they can only fit so much on one scroll, right? You have to think about how they would have passed that information along. So both of these books end up getting split up, so to speak, and divided. And the division is natural as, as far as structuring a book. Second Samuel is very different than First Samuel, and yet there's continuity. This was one piece of literature called Samuel that gets divided into one and two. Same thing happens in Chronicles, same thing happens in Kings. It's one body of literature, and yet then divided into... It's kind of like a show that you might watch that has two seasons, right? Season one is First Samuel, and season two is Second Samuel, okay? So what I want to do is, I, what, I, what we're kind of doing is flying over this. We're not flying over it um, quite in a jet, but we're also not in you know, a crop duster either. It's one of, them, one of the planes that uh, flies fast but still has propellers. I guess you just simply call it an airplane. Um, and so we're in one of those, and we're looking down on Samuel, and what I'm trying to do is not get lost in some of the details. I'm, moving, I'm going to be moving through both these books very quickly. Uh, we're already up to chapter 8, like it is, all right? We covered seven chapters last week. Uh, what we're trying to do now is go from 8 to 15 today. So join me on this flight. Where we want to start is 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, and then I'm going to drop down and start reading at verse 4. And what happens is, <laughs> you just got introduced to Samuel, right? I mean, he just accepts the Lord's call in chapter 3. He starts becoming a prophet. And now in chapter 8, notice how it begins, when Samuel became old. He's already old. This book is moving quickly as well. Notice 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Don't you like the straightforwardness of this? Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Remember, they're just coming out of the judges period. Samuel is technically a judge, a prophet, a priest, and a king figure. He's not a king, but he's a king figure, uniting the kingdom. That's still... Somewhat nascent as far as a kingdom new. Um, and he says, that, And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Notice this, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So God basically like, welcome to my world, big guy. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So then he warns them. And then notice, drop down to 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. 
Notice how there's no difference between Samuel's voice and God's voice. When you disobey the law, you're disobeying the law of Moses, which is the law of God. That's why Paul, by the way, will later warn his hearers, understand you're not just hearing my voice when I command you to do this, you're hearing the voice of God. So be careful. So people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of Yahweh, or the ears of the Lord. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? It's like, all right, God, I don't know if you heard that or not, but here's what they said. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Help us to see some things today that you want us to see that cannot be shown to us by man alone. We pray in your name. Amen. First and Second Samuel cover roughly a thousand years. Uh, it seems uh, when you when you're talking first Sam, first and second Samuel, you're talking in term uh, not a thousand years. What am I talking about? Hundred years. Sorry, a thousand seventy five is when we start, and then down to about nine seventy. Um, and so remember, one of the surest dates we have archaeologically, although that's changing all the time, and we're getting more and more sure dates, um, but that we back our other dates up from is Solomon. And so, so there's quite a bit of archaeological evidence for that. And so this is going to, Sam is going to run us down to about 970. And then you get kings picking up from there, which of course starts with David again, and then moves on to his son, Solomon. We begin the book, of course, with Hannah. And it's fascinating that Hannah is given a gift by God, a son, Samuel, and yet gives God a gift, Samuel. So she's given a gift, and then God gets a gift, which is Samuel. And Samuel is used, of course, in this transition period, moving from a corrupt priesthood under Eli to now the prophetic era that will then come later, right? Elijah, Elisha, and then more properly, the writing prophets that we know about, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, so on and so forth. And then, of course, the minor prophets, too. But Samuel is this transitional figure. Uh, think of think of this, you know, history's moving this way, and then there's a pivot where there's a kingdom now. Before, they're just sort of this loose confederacy, and they are ruled over by judges and sort of protect their territory. Now it's become going to become very territorial, and under David, he's going to push back the territories and ultimately one day take Jerusalem, which is where Zion will be, the mountain of God, which is where the temple will be. It is not that scene yet. We are not there yet. We're way away from that, actually, at this point. All right? That's why you see Samuel several times in Ramah. That's why before, when they lost the ark, it was coming from Shiloh. That was where the, temp- that was where the tabernacle was. Remember, there is no temple at this point. Just a movable tabernacle. You say, all right, well, sometimes these historical books just, just they freak me out. There's too much information to, to sort of handle, right? 
And I, and I, you know, I, I get that. And uh, within history, there's a lot to handle, right? But it's fascinating, and it's something that we need to, need to follow, is that salvation history is not disconnected from world history. So it's interesting. It's not some kind of parallel universe that we're operating in by faith. It's, a, it's in the world history, almost inside of it, underneath it, that the kingdom of God is brewing and operating from within. He doesn't, in other words, save the world by a force from the outside of doing something completely different and alter reality, so to speak, kind of thing. But instead, he saves the world from the inside out. That's the way he likes to do things. I didn't choose that way. Just as Jason prayed moments ago, moments ago he takes one of the worst ways to die, execution-wise, the cross, and he makes it into something that we cherish and is beautiful to Christians and ultimately is the symbol of Christianity. So the symbol of Christianity is an execution tool. But that execution tool has been redeemed to be a tool, if you will, of new life, of resurrection life, and of hope that we can have life everlasting. That death is not the end. That death is not the final word. That God has overcome death. That's good news, friends. So he likes to do this. And he likes to save things from the inside out, which is why I think he allows kingship. Was it best for them? Ah, That's an interesting question to ask. Should they have had a king? Because what we're told is that it sounds as if at least Samuel is offended by the fact that they want a king. And wouldn't you be? I mean, if you're the main dude that's uniting everybody and everybody's like, okay, yeah, it's, it's time for somebody else to get in here, man. We need somebody more powerful than you, bro. Somebody to go out and fight our battles. Notice what they say. They're looking for something that only God can give. God was already their king, and yet they disobeyed. Now they want a king, and guess what happens? They're going to continue to disobey. But God makes concession with them and tells Samuel, obey their voice. Did you notice how many times that was repeated? Right in your own personal Bible study, you should look for repetition. Good teachers always repeat themselves. And the Bible is the best teacher. And he says, obey their voice. Obey their voice. Don't worry about it. Obey their voice. And so the question arises, naturally, I would imagine at least like it does for me, and that is, well, does God want them to have a king? Is it God's will for them to have a king? Or is it their will being imposed upon God? And now he's working with their will in some kind of synergistic way of working together. And that, of course, brings up the question of then sovereignty, right, of God. And then human free will. How does human free will operate with inside of the sovereignty of God? The providence of God. And it's a great question. So you should think about that more. (laughs) To keep it 
and put it simply, God is enough for them, and they don't need a king. And yet, because they want a king, he gives them a king. Now, he's an interesting king himself, isn't he? Notice that God is not scared of other sovereigns. You know, you find this with people who maybe have money or people who have power already. They're not scared of other people that have power. Oftentimes they'll take that money and actually develop other people because they would love other people to come up to the level that they are. Or they have power in a circumstance and they're willing to share that power. Why? Because they're secure with where they are. But you'll notice that people who don't have power and are given a little bit of power then guard it and are angry when other people come in to that circle of power. Number one, that's not godly. And secondly, it's insecure. Our security is not in the ways of this world or in our own means of power or money. It is in God who owns everything and who is all-powerful. So shouldn't our position be secure, whether you have a lot of money or not, whether you have a lot of power or not, a lot of prestige or not? Because to Him, and because of the connection of Him, we have all things, Paul says, in Christ. That's something to live by, isn't it? When other things are falling apart, as they later will in the story, the one sure thing is God. No, their motives were wrong for having a king. Um, but at the end of the day, God gives them a king. And then, at the end of that day, he's sorry that he made him king. If you flip over to the end of our... Remember, we're, we're cruising at about 20,000 feet right now. We're not quite all the way up. We're a smaller plane. And you look at the landscape at the end of 15, which is the end of this section, 8 8 to 15, these chapters. God says twice, I'm sorry that I made Saul king. (laughs) This interesting dynamic of God, and at times even in the scriptures you'll see God repented that he had done that, changed his mind. These are hard texts. I don't claim to, this is above my pay grade, okay? I'm just showing you the deep end and saying, wow, isn't that deep? Man, pretty crazy, isn't it? You're not going to jump in? (laughs) You? No, not at all. Um, There is mystery to God. This is a mystery. Baptism is a mystery. Our will in His will. His will in our will is a mystery. The union of marriage is a mystery. Two worlds coming together to be one. That represents a relationship of Christ who is the husband to his bride who is the church being one. That's a mystery. In other words, Jessica and I have been married for 14 years. 
to say that I alone did something. You know, you did a good job raising the kids, Marshall. Where does that... That's, no, it's both of us. How would you begin to even... Un, if you're married, you know this. How would you even begin to untangle the various pieces of that? I don't think the point is that we're supposed to. We're not supposed to divvy up and have a checklist. All right, I made sure I did my stuff, so... Get your own stuff out there. No, it's, there's too much unity. And yet, there's this individuality of wills working together, isn't it? Synergy. More than one will at work. And that, that's the way God has chosen to do this thing. Many people would rather have God, at least in their heads... Just pushed all the buttons. Did all the coding. Zero, one, zero, one, zero. To rule our world. But instead he allows real responsibility, which then allows for real relationships and real choices and real consequences and real culpability. And that's why you can never say in any circumstance or any set of choices you make that it doesn't matter. It does matter. And it doesn't matter just to you. It matters to others. You think what you're doing off by yourself doesn't impact other people. And it does. So... This is a beautiful picture. God, the Bible always walks this line between complete sovereignty and complete free will. There is no idea of that in Scripture. It's this mystery between the two. Because it's a relationship. That's why. Eli is replaced with Samuel. Samuel is replaced with Saul. That's what's happening in Samuel. Then Saul, of course, will be replaced by David. And then David dominates all of 2 Samuel. 8 through 15 shows us particularly the making and unmaking of the first king of Israel, Saul. (laughs) And again, just a flyover view of Saul, Saul is chosen. Uh, And in some sense is not really likely... It shows us a picture of him that he's somewhat timid, and yet he's a head taller than everybody else in Israel, it says. Now, could that be metaphorical? Of course it could, but it could also be something real. He probably was a big man. He actually was able to quickly unite Israel against their enemies and defeat them. And yet, when he was anointed king, and they like, hey... Let's celebrate, man. This is awesome. Let's get this guy up here. They're like, hey, where's where's Saul? Anybody seen Saul? He was hiding, it says, behind the baggage. A guy that's a head taller. You know, sometimes when somebody's like a lot taller than you, you're like, you think you're better than me, don't you? You know, I mean, what? You know, it's like this Goliath thing, right? And we're later going to see height being used, right? Little guy against a big man. And he's defeated. But here's Saul hiding behind the bag. And they're like, where's he? 
Get up here, man. You see, Saul had some flaws, like most of us do. And in some ways, Saul is a tragic figure. Saul, in this section of Scripture, 8 through 15, has two times where he directly disobeys God and one time where he just does something simply stupid. The first time that he directly disobeys God after becoming king is he's at a battle. They're, they're assembling. they got all their guys. Everybody's ready. You know, everybody's sharpening their swords and spears and what have you. And they're like, man... Samuel said he'd be here seven days. Because basically Samuel said, wait for me to get there. And I'll, I'll, I'll arrive and I'll do the sacrifice and then y'all can go to war. So, you know, anybody impatient at all? That's Saul. He's like, and not only, notice his impatience. When you read this section of scripture, maybe later today or this week, his impatience is not just arbitrary. It's based on the people. Some of the people were getting have you ever been to, a, to something and you're like waiting for it and some of you are like, hey, I, I'm sorry, I just can't wait anymore, you know? When you kind of pull the plug, everybody starts going, yeah, I'm going to have to scoot on out too. See y'all later, you know? It's, it's this ripple effect, isn't it? Anybody that's been in leadership knows that. If you wait too long, people are losing heart. You know, it's like, I mean, just imagine they got the music going at first and they're like hyping themselves up. They're like, yeah, we're going to get there. We're going to destroy these guys. It's like the pregame and all that. And then the game is just delayed. Delayed. If you ever watch, the, watch baseball before, they'll, they'll have a game delay for three hours, and the co- game completely changes. Why? Lost momentum. So Saul's like, look, dude, if we wait any longer, we're going to lose these people. We may lose the battle. We've certainly lost the mojo here. So he says, I'm just, you know, I'm going to do it. Takes the sacrifice, slices the throat of the animal, bleeds out. All right, le- here comes Samuel. Sam's like, I'm sorry, what are you doing? Well, you know, I mean, I, um, I just, the people, you know, notice his concern is not toward God or toward Samuel, but the people. This will dominate Saul's thinking. And quite frankly, it dominates some of our thinking. Somebody in this room is dominated by what other people think about them. Well, you're in good company with Saul. He cared a lot. And we get to David, that's another character. But Saul is very concerned with what other people think about him. And Samuel says, look, um, wow, what you did here, this was not a little thing. And you may have read this text before and you said, why is this such a... All he did was, the king can never offer a sacrifice. That's a crossing of offices. Everybody in the ancient world, get this because this is crazy. In world religions, the king, whoever's the head honcho, is always the head of the religion. Whatever religion that might be. So like Pharaoh, he's the head of the religion. Right? If there's a king out there, he's the head of the religion. But God says, no sir, not in my kingdom Not in the kingdom I'm going to set up through Israel. There's going to be a separation of powers. We've talked briefly about this. Prophet, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And they don't cross each other. 
That's why I say Samuel is such a transitional, unique character in the Bible because he sort of acts as all three, but that's the last person to do that until you get to Jesus. Jesus alone has the right to act as prophet, as high priest, and as king. He is the one, after all, who invented all three positions. You don't cross those lines. And I think that's a good point to remember even when you get to the New Testament where there are lines given. There are some for this and some for that. And there are offices. And so he says, look, and this is, this is your, your heart sinks if you're reading this properly. When Samuel says, the kingdom could have been named after you. And now it'll be given to another. You're like, oh, ho-hum, that kingdom's destroyed. No, 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 no. <laughs> you see, Samuel's a prophet. The kingdom Samuel is speaking about is the kingdom of God, which has already been on display this morning here at this church. In other words, remember what the blind people say when Jesus shows up? Son of David, have mercy on me. They would have said if he wouldn't have done something stupid here and sinful and based on other people, by the way. They would have said, son of Saul. Jesus would have been son of Saul. But that is removed from him. And if that's not enough, his son, Jonathan, who, again, when you read this, you're introduced now to Jonathan in the story. So as we're progressing along now, Jonathan pops into the scene, which he's going to stay in there until the death of both uh, Saul and Jonathan on the same day. And he's going to become the best friend of David. And that's going to be, we'll talk more about that. But Jonathan goes and does some, uh, he does some covert operation. That's all the way I know to speak about it, you know. As you know, I like to read Navy SEAL books, stuff like that. He actually does. So he goes up and he sneaks up on these Philistines, and then they, they, get in, they engage them, and then the whole army comes from behind with Saul and all of them. And they're like, man, this, this is awesome, you know? Well, as they're defeating everybody, Saul, again, because he wants to impress people, he says, no one's going to eat until I'm avenged of all my enemies. Anybody who eats today is going to die. Well... Jonathan wasn't around when they said that. Jonathan, who initiated this engagement and then is victorious in this engagement, is out with some of his people. He reaches up, grabs some honey, eats it, revives him. Everybody else is like, oh, whoa, whoa, don't do that. He's like, that's a stupid command. That's a stupid vow. Concerned talking about his father. Saul comes around and says, whoever ate, because they started talking about it and all the people started eating. You know, there's a ripple effect again. That's what leadership does. He says, whoever did this is going to die today, even if it's my son. And so they, he's, John says, hey, uh, it was me. It was me. So, and uh, he says, okay, well, let's kill him. And all the people just stand there. Uh, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to touch him. Oh, uh, right. So, uh, anyway, good battle day, huh, boys? He has to move on, embarrassed. Well, then, as you move to 15, it's the final straw. 
The kingdom's already been rejected and another will rule. But now the situation worsens in 15. Here, uh, Saul again disobeys God and God ends up rejecting him. Basically what happens is this, in short, God, the Bible uses a very particular term that's used only a couple times, which it, it, it sort of means everything is holy God's. In other words, don't touch it, none of it. You remember a time where God tells him this? Jericho, right? In other words, it's all mine. Don't take a thing. Remember, Aiken's like, oh, man, that's a pretty sweet Armani suit. That'd look great in church. I think I'll wear it next Sunday. So he takes it, and of course, that's sin, because everything was, quote, dedicated to God. Nothing. It'll often, it'll often be kind of harsh, I'll be honest with you. It'll say, don't let anything be breathing when you're done. Now, what we know is they oftentimes didn't kill to that degree because, well, you see those people later on showing up, the Amalekites in particular. They'll show up later, and there's still a problem, which means they didn't kill them all. However, God says, I want you to take them out all the way. I want them extinguished, erased, Okay. Well, Saul goes to battle, he does all, you know, they win and everything. And, but then, here's Samuel, and he hears Saul coming back. And he's like, what is that I hear? I think it's the bleeding of lambs and sheep. Meh, meh, meh. He, you know, he hears these cows. Like, what in the... Why did he do that? Why did he bring the cows back? Why did he bring the sheep back? Because they were going to have a barbecue, that's why. They just won a battle. What would make the people happy? Ribeyes. That's what would make that. Lamb chops. He was going to celebrate. And we just keep a couple, that's all. We killed the rest, but we just keep a couple. God didn't say keep a couple. And then, not only that, they bring King Agag back. You know, to show him off. Look what we did. We captured the guy. Not even a scratch on him. He's going to be our prisoner. That's how bad we defeated those guys. Samuel says, okay. All right. Not only is the kingdom, but you're done. God's done with you. The presence has departed. You remember last week? Ichabod, the glory has departed. Now the spirit is gone from Saul. You know. Can anyone lose their salvation? I don't know about lose it, but your salvation can die because of your disobedience. It does in Saul. And God remains no longer with Saul and rejects him. And interestingly, for the rest of the book, he's chasing down his successor frantically. Again, worried about the people. Samus says, okay, we'll bring King Agog over here. So King Agog shows up. He's like, man, I'm so glad. Like, glad y'all spared my life. I really appreciate it. He says, hand me a sword. (laughs) He just goes to town hacking the guy up right before the Lord. Samuel does. Why? Because complete obedience is what Samuel knows the Lord wants. We think three-fourths is enough. No. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. The cross is complete obedience. Not halfway. You can't die three-fourths of the way. 
it's got to be all or it's going to be nothing. For Saul, he tried to squeeze by enough with God in order to impress the people. And what was taken from him was everything. Samuel did what was right, obeyed God. And then here's the last words that we have in this section here of 15. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God wants obedience from the heart, not just mere acts of religious service. Like it's great, you know, that maybe... You do some things for the poor. That you give your money. That you go to church. That you read your Bible when you can. That you pray occasionally. That's, that's great. But is it everything? Or is it this three-fourths obedience? Just enough to impress other people. Just enough to be seen as a good person in American terminology. You know, Jessica doesn't want me just to do things for her. She wants me to love and cherish her. I could do all the things that all the honey do. I could knock those out every single week. But that's not ultimately what she wants. She actually likes me. That's a good thing. She actually wants to be with me. And she wants me to love her. And, and it's not enough for God just for us to go through the motions. If you have an understanding of God like that, that's not the right God. The motions matter. But they are not the end game. Just like my acts toward Jessica matter. But even when my acts fail, or I can't do them, or I can't perform them, My love for her remains. God sees the heart. That's both good news and bad news. Obedience always involves sacrifice. But sacrifice is not always obedience. That's what we learn from this story. He's doing the sacrifice. But it's not obedience to God. And then lastly, God wants to use our weaknesses. One of the primary differences between David and Saul, because both of them fail God, both of them have weaknesses, is Saul was unwilling to truly repent and to confess. Every time he failed, he said, Come, Samuel, let's go up here and, 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 and let's, let me get forgiveness of sins for the Lord your God. So that he could look good. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about Samuel. He cared about what other people thought. And ultimately himself. If for you today. The thoughts of others dominate you. Would you just simply pray today. That the Lord. Would be more of a concern to you than other people. Or maybe somebody will think this or somebody will think, listen, not in this house, not in this place, they won't. You come here, we have people that will be cheering for you during the week. We have groups that meet 
that are looking and confessing and repenting sin and looking unto God for help. There's no judgmentalness right there. It's only, hey, let's do this. Let's follow Jesus. If you don't have that in your life, we want you to. I want you to. I need it all the time. And God wants to use even our weaknesses, mainly our weaknesses. He can't really use our strengths much. Those are impressive to other people. But it's our weaknesses where His strength is made perfect. So don't waste your weaknesses. Give them to God. And He'll do what He always does and redeem them. Just like the cross. But it can't be half obedience, a fourth of obedience, two-fourths or three-fourths. Let's go all the way with Jesus. Why keep playing around with it? His love, like a proper marriage should be, is an all-consuming love. Amen? Let us receive that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.